Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for April 28, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Catherine S. Newman, who became the Provost and Executive Vice President of Academic Affairs of the University of California in January of 2023. She was simultaneously appointed as the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Dr. Newman is the author of 15 books on topics ranging from technical education and apprenticeship to the sociological study of the working poor in America's urban centers, middle-class economic insecurity under the brunt of recession, and school violence on a mass scale. She's written extensively on the consequences of globalization for youth, on the impact of regressive taxation on the poor, and on the history of American political opinion on the role of government intervention. Her latest book, co-authored with Elizabeth S. Jacobs, a senior fellow in the Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population at the Urban Institute, is Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor, published this month by the University of California Press. And we end this edition of Forthright Radio with audio from the last floor speech that Montana's first trans woman elected to Montana State Legislature, Zoe Zephyr, gave before she was censured by the necessary two-thirds vote of the House on April 26, 2023. Her offense? Calling out that the gender-affirming health care they were outlawing would result in death and use the phrase, blood on your hands. Stay tuned for that. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Catherine Newman. Thank you so much. Oscar Lewis coined the term the culture of poverty in 1959, and the Moynihan Report titled The Negro Family, The Case for National Action from 1965 blamed cultural norms of blacks in particular for intergenerational poverty. And a lot of research has been done since to study the ongoing problems of poverty in the United States. I dare say that critical race theory has at least some of its roots in responding to that era. And you have spent much of your long career studying different aspects of poverty and culture. You note that given that inadequate employment plays such an important role in poverty, it's surprising that it's only relatively recently that scholars have studied the impact of tight labor markets on inequality. So you and your co-author, Elizabeth Jacobs, created studies and consulted other studies to answer some of those unanswered questions. And good planning on your part to have written Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor in one of the tightest labor markets in 60 years or so. So let's begin answering the question, what do we mean by a tight labor market and what are some of the dynamics of a tight labor market? Yes, well, a tight labor market usually refers to many fewer workers for the number of open jobs. So you have tight competition for workers as opposed to workers having tight competition for jobs. So it refers to an inadequate labor supply for the number of jobs that are on offer. And what that means is that employers have a very difficult time finding people, especially people who are qualified as they normally 
are for the jobs that they're seeking to fill. And that has enormous consequences, it turns out, for people at the very bottom of the labor market, including people who've been excluded altogether from employment for many years. It opens up opportunities because employers really don't have a choice. So very tight labor markets tend to emerge when we have national unemployment rates below 4.5%. And of course, today, those unemployment rates are more like 3.5 or 3.6%. So that's very, very low. And the longer they last, the more the consequences emerge. The more people are pulled into the labor market by higher wages, the more unconventional candidates are given consideration and hired, the more likely it is that job ladders, meaning possibilities of upward mobility within a company, moving up into management or job hopping between employers, the more either of those things happens. Employers then have to put more money into training people because when they hire people that don't have conventional qualifications, they have to figure out how to give them the skills that they don't have walking in the door, which means the great American jobs machine turns into the great American training machine. And that is an enormously important boost to productivity and boost to human capital. So these are just some of the things that happen when unemployment is very low for a persistent period of time. That's a tight labor market. So that's clearly good for people who want to find jobs, and particularly, as you mentioned, those who have had a hard time in the past getting them. But Wall Street and the Federal Reserve seem to think that low unemployment is not desirable. It even seems to be blamed these days for inflation, and never mind COVID, supply chain disruptions, bird flu, or profit-taking by basically monopoly corporations. One of the reasons the Fed keeps increasing interest rates is to impede wage growth in order to lower inflation. How do you respond to that approach? I think it's a very short-sighted approach. If what we're trying to do in the long run is to stabilize our labor force and make it possible for people to move up and earn more and create greater levels of prosperity for themselves and their families, and work this nation for once out of the poverty trap we've been stuck in for decades, then deliberately engineering higher levels of unemployment is catastrophic. It makes no sense at all. There are, uh, as you note, other reasons besides wage increases that inflation has been roaring ahead. Supply chain bottlenecks, energy prices, rentals increasing in cost, These are all the things that are really fueling inflation. And if we cut people off of the labor market and reduce the chances that they can finally escape poverty, we've really defeated an extraordinarily important opportunity to break through a national catastrophe into a long-run upward mobility, higher tax-paying, lower-benefit-using population. So my own view is that it is short-sighted. And it's tragic because we have such rare opportunities to actually make an enormous difference in the poverty picture. And this is one of them. Do you think it's a case of the old adage, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Are there just not that many tools for the Federal Reserve to use? Well, I'm not a macroeconomist, and you should probably discuss this with someone who is because I'm not an expert on the Federal Reserve. But 
I do think there are other possibilities, and we've seen other countries invoke them. For example, there have been windfall profit taxes against energy companies that have gouged their customers. There are other ways of trying to slow down the cost of goods increasing. There are mechanisms for rent control or reducing outsized profits. These are hard things that may not be the preserve of the Federal Reserve, but they are potentially effective instruments for slowing inflation. To be honest, inflation is slowing by itself at the moment. And so I don't know that we really need to hit the brakes so hard. But what I do think is very important is for us to understand what a historic opportunity we have to make a long-term, indeed possibly permanent change in the trajectory of the hundreds of millions of people who have experienced poverty over the last number of decades. And that is an opportunity not to be squandered. In your book, you do talk about other periods where there was low inflation and tight labor markets. Would you very briefly share some of those periods and what we can learn from them? Yes. So it is not the case that tight labor markets always are accompanied by inflation. The late 1990s was such a period, the Clinton years, when we had very low inflation, very high growth, very high productivity, rising wages, extremely low unemployment. That was about as close to fair weather as we could possibly get. There have been other periods in which we've had tight labor markets. And again, we didn't have a a serious inflation problem. But the Clinton years are probably the most proximate example. For that matter, 2019, when we first began seeing these record tight labor markets, that wasn't a period of inflation either. Inflation kicked off with the war in Ukraine. It kicked off with the supply chain bottlenecks connected to COVID. That's when we started to see inflation rise. But up until then, we had very tight labor markets roughly from 2018 onward. And we didn't have, I didn't hear anybody screaming about inflation then because we didn't have any. You utilize numerous studies in in your book, and one of them is the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, which you write is the longest-running longitudinal household survey in the world, going back to 1968. First of all, what the heck is a longitudinal household survey, and what were some of the things you learned from this as a resource? A longitudinal survey is one that begins with thousands of people and then tracks them over time. That's the meaning of the term longitudinal. So instead of doing a survey where you ask a different group of people, even potentially a representative group every year, a longitudinal survey starts with, I think it was 18,000 people, and then it follows them over time. And this particular study, the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, is a real national treasure because it not only tracked the original participants, it tracked their children, and it interviewed them, I believe, every two years. And so it's the most accurate means we have for understanding what happened to the households that these survey respondents lived in over the entire length of time since 1968. So it's the longest-running longitudinal survey that we have. And it is very important for trying to understand these dynamics because it asks people questions more or less in real time. So it wasn't a question of recalling something they couldn't remember about their employment, about their expenses, about their household composition. It has hundreds of questions that are very important. But what's really critical about it is that it tracks a representative sample of Americans over that entire time period from 1968 onwards, which is now going on a very, very long time indeed. 
the most important things that we learned from it was it enabled us to match people and their employment histories to the regions in which they live and to the unemployment rates by state. So we could look at the relationship between unemployment rates and their movements in and out of poverty and their wage increases and their household composition and many, many other variables. So that's really what's important. It allowed us to connect unemployment rates, which are geographic and importantly geographic, because we don't just want to look at national unemployment rates, which can obscure important variation. The unemployment rate, for example, on the border between the U.S. and Mexico or in the Midwest could be very different from the Northeast or the West because labor markets tend to be regional. So we do use the national unemployment rate as a general benchmark, but we want to know whether or not the real unemployment rate that people face in their region is having an effect on them. We need to be able to tie people in locations to that national survey. And that's what we were able to do with the panel study of income dynamics. It's a very important resource, especially because of its longevity. Yes, and in that period of history, industry has fled the country, gone to Asia for the most part. There's been huge migrations from the north to the south. It's very, very useful to have that as a reality check, basically. Exactly. You have stressed the importance of the durability and intensity of various tight or slack, the slack being less helpful for people looking for jobs. Explain the relationship and the meaning that you find from them. So what we were interested in trying to find out is, does it matter how low unemployment goes or does it matter how long a low unemployment rate lasts? And what we found was that both matter, but the duration is really important. A tight labor market that only lasts for six months doesn't really make a big difference. But a tight labor market that lasts for 18 months does start to yield these dramatic changes that I mentioned at the beginning of your interview, because it's over that period of time that employers start to face the stresses involved in not being able to recruit workers. So if they only face a tight labor market for three months, well, they can get through that, but not 18 months. So this is why we were interested in whether it matters how low it goes or how long it lasts or both. And it is both, but it's particularly important. The duration is particularly important because that's what forces employers to look more broadly at people who they might not have considered before. So, for example, we don't see very much change in the prospect that someone coming out of prison will find a job if tight labor markets only last for a few months. But if they last for 18 months, all of a sudden, these people who were considered to be completely unemployable start to look a little bit more attractive. Employers start to give them a second look and they start to hire them. And they learn that very often they turn out to be very good sources of workers, very reliable, more reliable sometimes than people with more conventional life histories because they really know those jobs are like their only chance and they take that very seriously. And the same thing is true for people with very little education, for single mothers, for young black men. These are all of the categories of people who in very loose labor markets with high unemployment are often not even considered. I had not considered the impact of where a a worker is in his or her career and something like a recession comes along. And you write that there's something like scarring 
for those who mm-hmm. are at the beginning of their careers in a bad labor market and that that follows them throughout their career. Could you expand on that? Yes, this first started to be observed during the Great Depression in the ni- late 1920s, early 1930s. We actually have data that goes back that far. And what it can show us is that young people who entered the labor market when it was in terrible, terrible shape, very high unemployment, start to look aberrant compared to other generations of young people. They had a very halting entry into the labor market, long periods of unemployment, very, very low wages. And it even when the economy recovered after the Second World War, the people who entered the labor market during the Great Depression never really fully recovered. Even when the economy recovered, they looked so aberrant. Their patterns of entry into the labor market just looked so strange that they were undesirable, essentially, for the rest of their lives. And so what this tells us is that the accident of turning 18, shall we say, or maybe it was 16 in those days, of turning 16 when the economy falls apart has huge consequences for your whole generation. What we didn't know until Elizabeth and I worked on this book is that the opposite of scarring effect happens when people enter a labor market when it's very, very tight. Because now they look like rocket scientists. They're streaking ahead. They're getting promotions. Their wages are rising. Employers are investing in their human capital at work, training them. So if you are fortunate enough, and again, this is sort of an accident, but if you're fortunate enough to be entering the labor market when it's in very, very tight condition, you benefit. You benefit, we don't know about for the rest of your life, but you benefit for the for succeeding business cycles. And that's really important because, again, people who come into the labor market or stay in it when it's very, very strong build up a resume that looks much stronger than they might otherwise have and certainly much stronger than they would have if they were coming in when unemployment is very high. So scarring effects happen when especially young people come into the labor market when it's in a high unemployment period. But the opposite, we don't have a word for it yet. Uh, what's the opposite of a scar? I don't know. In any case, the opposite happens. You, you have a, a, an advantage if you come into a labor market when it's in very tight condition because it affects your trajectory and gives you both human capital and experience that benefits you in succeeding periods of time. So even when the labor market starts to fall apart, even when recessionary pressures grow. If you entered when the labor market was very tight, you have a kind of protective shield around you. It's not fully bulletproof, but it really helps. It means that you're able to sustain your upward trajectory or at least not lose as much as people who have a more aberrant biography. We're speaking on April 24th, 2023. How long would you say the duration of this current tight market has been at this point? It was interrupted by COVID, of course. COVID shoved the economy into a ditch and created the sharpest rise in unemployment since the Great Depression, but also the fastest turnaround. So unemployment came back down very, very quickly. So if I could somehow magically erase COVID. (laughs) I would say that it had lasted from about 2018 until now. It has, it hasn't diminished at all. So it's going on five years, but we had that 
interruption, which we really should count. And so if we just count from the end of the COVID recession, which really started to diminish in 2021, I would say we're about two years into the post-COVID recovery. But we're more like five years into this entire cycle, except that we had that awful blip in the middle, which was COVID. This isn't something you particularly address in your book, but I am curious. COVID has had a tremendous effect on how people view work, where they work, what they're willing to do. Anecdotally, I'm hearing from friends who have small businesses. First of all, it's really hard to find people to work. Second of all, it's really hard to keep them. I'm hearing stories like a local hospital put out a job for a receptionist. Somebody applied, was hired, left after one day because, quote unquote, it was a desk job. So I've never quite experienced the lack of stability, it seems, in employer-employee relationships. Have you observed that or have you heard anything or have any thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, COVID, of course, did rearrange a lot of the landscape and created this movement toward remote work, which is expanded the geography between employers and employees. This book was deliberately not about COVID. I mean, we started the research in the fall of 2019 when nobody had even heard of COVID. And we already had at that point a 50-year low in unemployment. So what we observe in this book is not particularly tied to COVID. But I would say this, tight labor markets do place a lot of options in the hands of workers. If they don't like the job they've got, they can find another one. If they think the wages that they're being offered are too low and they can they can find jobs with higher wages. Years ago, I wrote a book called No Shame in My Game, The Working Poor in the Inner City, and it focused entirely on fast food workers in Harlem in New York. At that point in time, those workers had not received a wage increase in over a decade. Their wages were sliding way, way below inflation. They were always on the run, never secure. Today, if you looked at that same job, you would see workers earning more than $15 an hour, being paid vacation pay, sick pay benefits, college tuition. None of those things adhered to the workers I studied. 20 years ago using the same in Harlem's uh, fast food industry. So if a worker is employed in a job that doesn't suit them or isn't well paid or doesn't have the right benefits, a tight labor market gives them a lot of bargaining power. Now, this is not a happy thing for many employers. They have to scramble to find workers. But on the worker side, this is unbelievable. It confers material benefits that are astonishing in their magnitude relative to any other period of time I've studied in my long career of looking at low-wage workers. So, yes, it leads to some degree of instability or movement, but that's how workers get more money for their labor. And if we're worried about poverty as opposed to employers' desires for stability, it is a tonic against poverty. One of the phenomena that you've already alluded to it a bit, but let's explore it more deeply, is that in a tight labor market, people who have been in prison have more opportunities. They get a second chance, what you refer to as second chance thinking. And 
A term that was new to me is returning citizens. Talk about that a bit, please. Yes. Well, in recent years, there has been a, a strong emphasis in the social sciences among journalists and among some policymakers that we have gone overboard in mass incarceration, that we have damaged the prospects of people who find themselves behind bars for a while to ever stabilize again. And of course, since a lot of that incarceration was connected with drug offenses and nonviolent crime, the sense that we have ruled people out of any kind of productive employment possibilities, the ability to support families and to retard any form of recidivism, that we've sort of locked ourselves into a paradigm that isn't productive for them, isn't productive for the country. And that has led to a lot of interest in how to promote the employment prospects for people who have criminal records. One of the discoveries in all of this and one of the policy changes that was made was to prevent employers from asking people whether or not they have a criminal record at the very beginning of an employment interview. It is now legally forbidden for many employers to ask that question until they're ready to make an offer. At the point where they're ready to make an offer, they can ask that question. But the hope is that if they're positively impressed by someone and think they would make a good worker, hopefully they will carry that positive impression and not be totally thwarted by the understanding that they do have a criminal record. This is the so-called ban the box movement. The box, meaning the box that often is used to be in an employment applications asking if you have a criminal record. And what we find is that if you ban the box and ensure that a criminal record only becomes known a little bit later into the employment process, that it will help people who have criminal records find their way back into society and back into employment. The term returning citizen came about as a result of this desire to create a higher degree of respect for or at least neutral perspective of people who have criminal records. And so instead of thinking of them as ex-convicts, which is probably the more typical term of the past, returning citizen is a term used to emphasize the fact that people have paid their debt and are returning to society, and they are citizens, and therefore deserve more opportunity to prove themselves. And of course, that the rest of us will all do better if returning citizens are employed and able to pay for themselves and take care of their families than if they become the financial responsibility of the state. Or have to resort to crime just to survive. Yes, of course. Absolutely. That doesn't benefit anybody. So one of the things I found so remarkable is that when labor markets tighten, even people who have really hard times finding jobs, and generally speaking, returning citizens do have a very difficult time. I mean, they're among the hardest to employ and the highest unemployment rates of any category of Americans. But things really improve dramatically when labor markets tighten, again, because employers don't have a choice. If they've got to hire people, they will start looking in corners that they didn't look in before. And many cities have organized nonprofit organizations or government agencies that try to help place people with criminal records in jobs. And they're more easily able to do that when labor markets are very tight. We're speaking with Catherine Newman, who, with her co-author Elizabeth Jacobs, has just published the book Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. 
You mentioned calling it ban the box. Is that federal legislation that prevents that being on the initial forms or what? These are mostly state laws and they don't exist everywhere, but it became kind of a social movement, if you like. And so I believe there are 30 some odd states that have banned the box regulations. It's not universal. I was dismayed to find that, if I understand correctly, a business cannot employ returning citizens, ex-felons, whatever you want to call them, and get federal contracts. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. And so even something like a construction project, if it's paid for with federal grants, they are not allowed to hire people with felony records because most of the fieldwork research for this book was done in Boston. There are laboratories being built, for example, at, at MIT, which is famous for its science research and has lots of big buildings always being built largely on federal grant dollars. And they cannot hire construction workers who have felony records, which is pretty crazy if you ask me. I mean, it just makes no sense to me. Why wouldn't you want construction workers if you can find them, even if they have criminal records, as long as they are the people you want to hire who have the skills you need? It strikes me as bad public policy to prevent that from happening carte blanche, but that's the case. And of course, that brings up the elephant in the room, which is race. The disproportionate numbers of African Americans, Latinos, indigenous people are far more represented in the penal system than their percentages in the population. So this just further disadvantages them in terms of employment. That's right. And so I advocate getting rid of that policy. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it makes any sense. I think people should be employed if they are qualified. And I think every moment we spend training them in jobs, as many employers do when labor markets are tight, is an investment in their future and in their prosperity. And that helps all of us, not just them, not just their families, but all of us, because someone who's employed and earning a good living doesn't need a whole host of federal benefits or state benefits. They can take care of themselves and they can have a future that will make all of us better off. So the magic of tight labor markets is that it constrains employers' choices and it makes it possible for people who have been historically disadvantaged to move ahead. And it seems to me that we ought to make that possible in every way we can if we really want to see durable positive movement out of poverty. And that is disproportionately people of Latinx and African-American backgrounds. But it's true of millions of whites as well. So the point is we have an opportunity now with a very long run of a tight labor market to see this improve over time and give people a chance to permanently work their way out of the bottom of our society. And this strikes me as absolutely all to the good. The second part of the book focuses on neighborhoods in the Boston area, Roxbury and Franklin. It was very interesting, the changing demographics in that area. Of course, people are sensitive to the whole gentrification situation now. What would you like our listeners to be aware of in the Franklin and Roxbury neighborhoods? So the most important thing from my point of view is that the the long liter the long and historic literature on poverty 
argues that when there's a high level of unemployment, you see the effects in neighborhoods. You see too many people who are idle. You see too much mischief. You see danger and uh, sometimes violent crime more likely to develop in neighborhoods with high levels of unemployment. So the question we, we were trying to pursue there is, well, if employment gets much, much better, do neighborhoods get better? Do families get better? The literature on poverty suggests that high levels of unemployment are responsible for unstable neighborhoods or violent and crime-ridden neighborhoods, and that they have a profound negative effect on families. So what we found was that in Franklin Field and in Roxbury, two neighborhoods which in the early 2000s were among the most dangerous, most violent crime-ridden neighborhoods in the Boston area, today have vastly lower crime rates, I mean plummeting crime rates, and they are much safer. Businesses are locating in those areas which used to be food deserts, bank deserts, commercial interests basically left those neighborhoods away, just never touched them. And today they're thriving. And they're thriving in part because unemployment has declined to the point where people have money to spend. They have lots to occupy them going to work. They're not isolated. They are able to take advantage of the labor market roaring ahead in Boston. And that has meant that it's better for children, safer for them to be outdoors, safer for daycare centers to take kids to the park because the parks are safer. People feel more trust in their neighbors when there's high levels of employment. So the public climate of those neighborhoods has moved from being among the most dangerous and almost furtive neighborhoods to being calm and comfortable and people are, feel safe. And this is one of the most important side benefits of tight labor markets. When they lead to greater neighborhood stability, fewer people hanging out, making mischief, young men who are occupied by earning a living instead of hanging out on the corner. And for families, it leads to much higher incomes in those households, even when people are not marrying. We did not see any big change in marriage patterns. And that's one of the things the original literature on poverty argued was that unemployment was making men less desirable as marriage partners. What we see is that when men have jobs, it doesn't really change the marriage patterns very much. That seems to be a kind of cultural change that's happened across the country where we just have a lot later marriage and a lot less of it. But when men who have children are, even if they're unmarried, are earning money, they are contributing to their children's households. They are paying their child support payments at nearly 100%. And that's what doesn't happen when they lack jobs. When they don't have jobs and they're not earning money, they can't and they don't contribute to the households of those children's mothers. And so even for families, we see men spending more time with their children. We see them paying more to help support them. We see all kinds of strengths developing for families. It doesn't cure everything. It doesn't create a permanent love of marriage. But if what we care about is stability to support children, which is one of the things they need the most, and one, is one of the most debilitating aspects of poverty is instability, that stability under tight labor markets makes a very big difference for children. And I think we're going to find that the children raised in this 
period of tight labor markets will show that in you know in their early years they will show the positive benefits of greater resources coming into the households where they live less anxiety for their mothers trying to take care of them more safety in the neighborhoods where they live and just a more stable and you know upbringing you noted that the marriage gap, as as it was being called, um, is one of the symptoms of inequality. That among low income, the marriage rate is about thirty eight percent, whereas the high income sectors is eighty percent, which I think is kind of interesting. Yes, marriage seems to have become. <laughs> predominantly a feature of life for college-educated, more affluent people. It is not so popular among working class and poor households, and that does not seem to have changed very much with tight labor markets. At least we can't see much of a difference. But if what we care about most is, the again, the stability of households and the provisioning for children, tight labor markets still make a positive difference. They just don't wipe out this vast difference between classes. In your 2012 book, The Accordion Family, Boomerang Kids, Anxious Parents, and the Private Toll of Global Competition, we're still seeing accordion families. Talk about what they are and and how they can be impacted by tight labor markets. Yes. So I use the term accordion family to try and describe the practice that has developed over the last 20 or 30 years of young people and now not so young anymore, people returning home to live with their parents and to spend many more years inside the households where they grew up, including coming back after they go to college or staying with their parents while they're in their early years in the labor market. And this is a worldwide phenomenon in the advanced industrial countries. So The Accordion Family was a book based on research I did in six different countries, of which the United States was just one. And it turns out that this is even more pronounced in countries like Spain or Italy or Japan. And Spain and Italy are countries that we associated with really big families. They don't have big families anymore. They have much lower fertility. And the children are not leaving home. So they're not forming new households, they're not getting married, they're not having kids, and that we see these fertility rates plummeting. And by the way, the same thing has happened in the United States. The virtue of accordion families is that families are helping to take care of the next generation, especially if they face less appetizing opportunities in the labor market, which has been the case for many, many years. It isn't right now, but it has been in the past. However, when we enter a tight labor market in the U.S., our social policies, which help to support people who are at the low end of the income spectrum, like Section 8 housing vouchers, for example, or Medicaid or SNAP, federal food stamps, those programs are all means tested, meaning we tend to cut people off from them when they start to earn more money. They have low thresholds beyond which you will not qualify anymore. And the problem with that is that in a period when people are earning good money, they will run past those benefits in ways that are hard on them if they aren't earning enough to cope with increased costs that tend to develop at the same time. So 
in Boston. Rent started to rise in the city of Boston. And in the neighborhoods like Franklin Field and at Roxbury, people were starting to face higher and higher rents. Now, if they're earning better money, they can pull ahead of those rents, but not far enough to really make it easy or comfortable to live. And so what they tend to do, especially if they're in households with multiple earners, is start to realize that they're going to have to ask their children to leave the house if they're going to keep the hold of Section 8 housing benefits. And they can't afford to live in these gentrifying neighborhoods unless they can earn more money and still hold on to the benefits for a while longer. So part of what we were trying to argue in this book is that we are a bit short-sighted when we move to cut people off of these benefit programs too early or, you know, uh, if we punish them essentially for earning more money. What we need to do is let them stay on those benefits a bit longer until their wages rise a little bit more so that they can truly put a cushion between themselves and their expenses. If we yank those benefits out from under them, what tends to happen is they push the other earners that are in their household out because they can't stay in those houses if they can't have those Section 8 benefits. And that's not good. In poor families, the ability to pool money to have you know teenagers and young 20s who are working and pooling all that money inside a single household, that's what allows the whole family to get ahead. So accordion families that have, you know, older adolescent children and older children who are earning money in the same household are going to be on the losing end of these what we call benefit cliffs. So we sort of urge policymakers to rethink that, again, to let people earn a bit more money, keep a hold of those subsidies, stop worrying about people taking advantage of taxpayers uh, for a little while and let them pull ahead so that they can permanently get ahead instead of forcing them backwards by taking that benefit away too quickly and not allowing them enough time to earn excess money so that they can truly afford housing themselves. Well, I was encouraged to learn about the economic empowerment demonstration in Stockton, California, which is the first mayor-led guaranteed income. Tell us about that. Guaranteed income is an idea that actually goes back a very long way. Even Milton Friedman was a big proponent of guaranteed income. The idea is that you provide people with a sort of floor below which they will not fall. And it acts as, a, again, a subsidy, but it's a cash subsidy, basically, And what the city of Stockton did was provide some of its poorest households with a guaranteed amount of money every month to add to their wages. And then they wanted to see whether or not that would enable people to gain greater stability or whether they would do what many critics of this policy argue, which is they would stop working. So the people who are opposed to guaranteed income or skeptical of it think that if people are given a cash subsidy, they will just cut back on their work effort and that then the rest of us will be paying for people who aren't working as hard as they could. But what they've discovered in Stockton and some of the other experiments with guaranteed income is that that's not what happens at all. People do not reduce their work time whatsoever. They just have a little bit more money to do things like repair their cars so they can get to work or invest in their children 
through daycare or summer camp or some of the things they're just not able to pay for when they're at the rock bottom. So those guaranteed income experiments are efforts to see what would happen if we provided people with something of a modest subsidy and pulled them out of poverty through a cash benefit. And they've been successful in that they've allowed people to invest in their children and some greater degree of stability or capital like a functioning car and not reduce their work time. Is that ongoing or is it finished or? I believe it is ongoing, but I'm not actually sure. But it was overall a very positive. It was, yes, it was. You end your book with rewriting regulatory policies to ensure labor markets generate higher quality jobs. You've mentioned some of those suggestions. What are others that you would like to share with our listeners? So some of the other things that we think matter are things like stabilizing job shifts. One of the things that tends to be problematic for people at the low-wage end of the labor market is that they are not able to count on when they're expected to be at work. They're called at the last minute. Their shifts might last for a few hours. If there's not enough business, they'll be sent home. It's a very unstable experience. So we think that there's some benefit in regulating shifts so that people have a little bit more control over their lives. Regulatory changes like making childcare more affordable, one of the most difficult aspects of staying in the labor market, especially for single mothers, is affordable childcare. And that's a huge problem nationally, and it's one that continues post-COVID to be among the most serious problems that we face. And when we see people withdrawing from the labor market, it's very often because they don't have accessible childcare. So we would like to see you know, a greater investment in affordable childcare because that's going to help people go to work and stay at work. Minimum wage increases. The minimum wage is a very important floor. Most workers these days are working above the minimum wage anyhow, but the minimum wage actually sets a floor and it tends to have an impact on the rest of the wage structure. The minimum wage has not been increased much at all. In fact, it falls way, way, way below inflation. And so increasing the minimum wage and keeping that moving forward is very important. More portable benefits. So right now we tend to tie things like health insurance to a particular employer. If we had a medical system that wasn't quite so tied to employment, but instead was as it was originally intended to be, free of the employment structure as the main means for delivering health care, which is what we see in most other countries. Very, very few countries in the Western world tie things like medical insurance to employers, but we do. And that makes it difficult for workers to move around. It makes it difficult for them to seek the highest paying job because they can't afford to let those medical benefits go. So we think that it's we're overdue to think about how we might improve on that. We'd like to see more recognition and resources through the tax code given to employers who provide for college tuition or other internal forms of training. One of the best things we discovered about tight labor markets is the way in which they encourage employers to invest in training the labor force because they are hiring people who are unconventional, and they invest in them so that they can do the jobs that employers need them to do. 
we think that should be recognized and encouraged because when labor markets get loose again, we tend to see that disappear. But if we encourage this through tax benefits given to employers who can prove they are providing for that training, that encourages them to keep going with something that is extremely productive. There is no better source of training than employers themselves because they're giving people very concrete skills that really matter on the job rather than more general skills, which is what you learn in school, for example. So these are just some of the things that we think are important to try and invoke into our social policies so that when labor markets loosen, when unemployment rises, we don't give up all the benefits that they've conferred on our lowest wage workers. Because in the end, what we all should want is for people to move out of poverty and stay out of poverty and raise their children in more secure and stable settings so that they don't repeat the poverty experience in their own adulthood. If we can achieve that, that would be a truly remarkable turn of events in a country that is increasingly divided by wealth and for whom inequality is a raging problem. You pointed out in your book that COVID actually offered us an example or a series of examples about what can be done at the policy level because of some of the restrictions and things that got loosened, the child tax credit, for example, and loosening access to Medicaid or SNAP. There was a federal eviction moratorium. We haven't gotten into the whole housing issue. But that is really a big problem for not just the lowest income, but increasingly middle class people as well. Exactly. What we realized because of COVID is that we know how to lift the country out of poverty quickly. One third of the nation's poor children were lifted out of poverty through the child allowance that was invoked in the beginning of the pandemic. One third, almost overnight. So we shouldn't think that we don't know how to do this. The question is, do we have the political will to do this? And sadly, most of those benefits are being rolled backwards now, which is just terribly unfortunate because there are just incredibly positive consequences come out of moving people out of poverty. We know this because we've studied what happens to children who are poor. They tend to repeat the experience of their parents. They have lower educational attainment. They have higher likelihood of being involved in the criminal enterprise. It just It is not good for children to be poor. And having taken a third of them out of income poverty in the space of months is an extraordinary achievement. It shows us we know how to do this. We just need to do it. Thank you very much for being our guest today on Forthright oh, Radio. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You have just heard a conversation with Catherine Newman, co-author of the book, Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor, published this month by the University of California Press. And now for some international news from Helena, the state capital of Montana, headlined from the April 26, 2023 Guardian, Montana Republicans Bar Transgender Lawmaker from the State House Floor. Montana Republicans have barred the transgender lawmaker Zoe Zephyr from the State House Floor for the rest of the session after she told colleagues they would have, quote, blood on your hands, end quote, if they voted to ban gender affirmation 
affirming medical care for trans children. Under the terms of the punishment, Zephyr will still be able to vote remotely. The Democratic representative had been forbidden from speaking for the past week over her comments, which Republicans said violated decorum. The decision to silence Zephyr had already drawn protests that brought the State House to a halt on Monday as demonstrators demanded Zephyr be allowed to speak. Tuesday's floor session was canceled without explanation, and Republican leaders closed the gallery to the public on Wednesday, quote, to maintain decorum and ensure safety, end quote. And now, Representative Zoe Zephyr in her own words. First, her statement that has drawn the ire of Republicans. This bill tries to define male and female as binary. You could not legislate binary sex any more than you could legislate that the earth is flat. Intersex people exist, trans people exist, and this bill doesn't change that. If you are forcing a trans child to go through puberty when they are trans, that is tantamount to torture. If you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. And then her speech before she was censured. Today, as with every day in this body, to rise on behalf of my constituents in House District 100 from Missoula, Montana, who elected me to be their representative in the People's House. Today, I rise in defense of those constituents, of my community, and of democracy itself. Last week, I spoke on the governor's amendments to Senate Bill 99, which banned gender-affirming care. This was a bill that was one of many targeting the LGBTQ community in Montana. This legislature has systematically attacked that community. We have seen bills targeting our art forms, our books, our history, and our health care. And I rose up in defense of my community that day, speaking to harms that these bills bring and that I have firsthand experience knowing about. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana, including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. And in that hearing, our caucus pleaded with the Republican chair of the Judiciary Committee to not allow certain testimony to keep decorum. And we were told a lot of people have a lot of opinions on these things. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. And when the speaker asks me to apologize on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He's asking me to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of our community, and I refuse to do so, and I will always refuse to do so. I would also say that if you use decorum to silence people who hold you accountable, all you are doing is using decorum as a tool of oppression. Additionally, When the speaker disallowed me to speak, what he was doing is taking away the voices of the 11,000 Montanans who elected me to speak on their behalf. And when I was continued to not be recognized, what my constituents in my community did is came here and said, that is our voice in this body. Let her speak. 
Let her speak. And when the speaker gaveled down the people demanding that democracy work, demanding that their representative be heard, when he gaveled down, what he was doing is driving a nail in the coffin of democracy. But you cannot kill democracy that easily. And that is why they kept chanting, let her speak. And why I raised my microphone to amplify their voices, to make sure that the people who elected me here are heard. And that when this body seeks to pass bills that harm our community, that get us killed, that this body is held accountable for those actions. I'm not sure what comes next here, but what I will say is I will do what I have always done. I will rise in support of my community. I will take the hard and moral choice and stand up in defense of the people who elected me to do so, and the people in our communities. And I will say I'm grateful for those who stood up in defense of democracy on Monday. And I will also say that I hear everyone, I hear my constituents, I hear your constituents who say thank you for standing up. And while there were comments about safety, I would say that the protest was peaceful. And I would also say that when we talk safety, we think about the safety that our bills bring or don't bring. Because you say there was staff endangered, but I know in this building, in the quiet hallways when it's just me, the staff come up to me and they say thank you. They say thank you for defending our community because they have loved ones who these bills attack, who these bills hurt. And I will always stand up for them. And I will always, no matter what happens today, stand up for democracy in the state of Montana. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now.